Hi, I'm Katrina Ingram. Welcome to Back to School Again, the show for midlife learners recorded at the Norquest College Innovation Studio. We talk with midlife learners about their educational journey, sharing their stories about how they are balancing the demands of school, work, and family, and where they hope their educational pursuits will take them. My guest today is Elliot Young. He's an Indigenous Community Engagement Advisor with Norquest College, where he develops relationships and partnerships with the Indigenous community in Edmonton and the surrounding area. He's a Nehiao from Ermanskin, Cree Nation, and he's a student at the University of Alberta, where he's pursuing a master's degree in community engagement. Elliot, welcome to the podcast. Yeah, it's great to be here. Now, we first met at the Rundle Summit in Banff in February of 2019. And the Rundle Summit is a grad student conference that's co-hosted by the University of Alberta Communications and Technology Program, the MACT program, which is my program, and the University of Calgary's Communications, Media, and Film Program. Um, And Elliot, the program that you're enrolled in, uh, whose acronym is MACE, which stands for Master of Arts in Community Engagement, is actually a sister program uh, to my program, MACT, the Master of Arts in Communications and Technology. Um, So we're both part of the Faculty of Extension, but other than that, I really know nothing about your program. So can you tell us a little bit more about MACE? Sure, definitely. Uh, So I came, uh, MACE is a relatively new program. I think it's only about four years old. And just last year was the first year that they graduated a a successful uh, student out of the program. So there's only been one person with a that with that has completed the MACE program. But the program itself is wrapped, uh, there's six courses that need to be taken, uh, three core ones. The first one is the introductory to community engagement. And essentially, and when, I, when it's community engagement, it's more around community engaged scholarship. So it's very focused on, on um, kind of the ethics, the rigor, uh, the kind of a community-based participatory research approach to engagement and scholarship and research, and just essentially around what it looks like, what it looks like through the academia. Uh, so that's the 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 first course. The second course is the the theory behind uh, community engagement, which isn't. I I wouldn't say there's a there's a specific theory behind community engagement. There's uh, the approach that community engagement takes is more of a social theory. So it's looking a lot around, I would say, uh, the focus is really around kind of social justice and oppression and how do you use community engagement to kind of bring the voice of uh, kind of the oppressed to to um, kind of, how would I say it, kind of more vulnerable or underprivileged voices into the sphere is so the sphere of academia, making sure that the university or the academia is actually meeting the needs of community, and how is it being addressed? How is it addressing issues to to the community? And then uh, the third one is around qualitative or just research methodologies within uh, community engagement, which is the course I'm going to be taking this fall, which I'm really excited about. And then you're allowed three electives. One needs to be around uh, research methodologies outside of um, the core courses. And then the two electives, which I was really uh, uh, fortunate to be able to take one of the MACT courses, which was with uh, Professor Rob McMahon. Uh, it was an online course, my first ever online course. And oh my gosh, it, like it's it's such an interesting because uh, my the MACE program is all in person. 
and then uh, Mac is mainly online or at least blended. So it was it was interesting taking an in-person course along with uh, an online one. But uh, Rob McMahon actually uh, put uh, a lot of uh, interesting approaches within that online course as well. There was a, uh, experiential learning along with it. So we actually uh, got to go to a sweat and went to... Um, uh, went to two community members out in Saddle Lake because it was wrapped around a sculpture and there were the two that kind of worked on the sculpture. So it was really an interesting approach to it. Uh, so that was one of the electives and my other elective was a uh, evaluation a community context. So I, had to, I got to do that in the spring. And then this year, uh, or for this, my, my qualitative one, I was able to wrap it around a, a different project and do an independent study. So, and then the last piece of it, is a, is a practicum. So they want to actually see that you're able to provide what you're learning into a, uh, into an actual community setting. So into a project. So applying a community engaged approach in a, in an actual like lived experience and be doing it that way. And then there's a thesis part of it. So that's pretty much it in a nutshell. Not really a nutshell. That was a pretty long explanation, but. <laughs> Amazing. I heard so many great things about that course with um, Rob McMahon and um, using augmented reality uh, as part of the course. So really kind of crossing over into, you know, community engagement and the digital and technical side of things as well. So yeah, super yeah. interesting. Yeah. Now, your undergrad is in Native Studies, and I know you've spent some time earlier in your career working in government and in policy. What made you decide to pursue the field of community engagement for your master's? Yeah, so I, I, I saw the the MACE program um, probably uh, right when it came out and thought about it. And then it wasn't until about a couple years afterwards, I, I looked at my, my resume and my experience and a lot of it was around uh, or pro uh, applied several different aspects of, of engagement or stakeholder relations or relationship building. Um, and throughout my time in government, uh, well, my first bit was around uh, uh, I was an Aboriginal engagement consultant, so I was working with uh, with a low slave office and doing Aboriginal engagement. And then my second piece was community and policy liaison, which was again around engagement, but really specifically how community informs uh, policy development. And then my last bit was uh, was around managing actually policy development. And all of these, uh, because the policy development cycle essentially has five different phases. And uh, the way that the governor of Alberta ideally uh, has uh, community involved in there is engagement throughout all of those process, all of those different phases. So uh, seeing that community engagement is actually really vital to informing decision decisions within government that uh, as much as my, my positions weren't necessarily, uh, one of them was directly involved around kind of in, engagement with Indigenous communities, youth, uh, community, uh, really a broad community engagement. Uh, my other pieces around policy had uh, different phases around uh, engaging community and specifically engaging, engaging Indigenous communities. And so that was uh, a an interesting realization for myself because I, I thought like, oh no, my, my, my work has been mainly around policy development and just developing or at least analyzing policy. But a main factor around that policy development was actually 
connecting with the right community members and the the key stakeholders around how is this policy informed and how do we develop this policy with community in mind and making sure that we're meeting a community need instead of us just going out and developing policies that isn't going to be a, be able to be, apply, be applied anywhere um so once i made that realization i'm like well why don't i become like uh more versed or at least an expert in community engagement and try to broaden my knowledge around community engagement and the actual kind of the, the ethics and the accountability of community engagement. And so when I enrolled into this, into this program, it was, it, it was very much exploring community engagement in the sense of how do you ethically and, and appropriately provide that avenue for uh, kind of the oppressed or the underprivileged to have a voice within decision making and doing it in the right way. So, Very yeah. cool. It's cool when you have that aha moment and you realize, oh yeah, this this completely relates to what I've been doing. Yeah. <laughs> um, now I asked my guests to complete a questionnaire before we go into the studio, and you shared that as an Indigenous person, being Cree is a strong part of who I am and what I do, and I'd love to unpack that with you. In what ways has your heritage impacted who you are and what you do? Yeah, so I I I want to address this in in two ways. Um, one is a broader context of me as an indigenous person and how I how I, uh, I I take or how I incorporate my indigeneity within my work, and then the other side of it is specifically as a Cree person, the kind of a Nehiao. So um, with being an indigenous person, and this is where. Uh, with, within my program, and especially within Rob's class, I was really able to explore what it means to be uh, indigenous and and where um, uh, kind of a, a post-colonialist approaches to community engagement. And what stands out for me for, for being an indigenous person and how I approach my work within working with communities is uh, something that you see now with the, the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People and kind of a broad uh, approach to it or principle is that there's nothing nothing about us without us. So really being able to, uh, whatever decisions are being made um, about Indigenous people, it should involve Indigenous people. And if it can, it should be right from the start. There's a lot of times uh, where um, uh, an issue or uh, a strategy is developed and then Indigenous people are, are an afterthought to it of being like uh, either somebody prompts them and saying, have you thought about or like where have you engaged Indigenous people with the development of this strategy? And they'll be like, we didn't. And then so it's go back and engage. Uh, or they've been incorporated right from the beginning, but it's it's very much on the spectrum of of being able to be informed or actually having a place to be empowered and collaborating right from the beginning. Uh, so that indigenous approach is very much from uh, from a, an anti-oppressive social justice type of lens of if there is if there is a voice missing from the table around where decisions are being made, then we need to make sure that they're there. And and that indigenous piece is so important, making sure that there's not a pan-indigenous approach, especially within uh, a city like Edmonton. There's so many different cultures here. There's Cree, I'm Cree, but uh, at times uh, 
depending on the organization and who's leading a project, there can be a very Cree-centric type of approach to it. And there's there's different cultures. There's people from Treaty 7. There's people from Treaty 8. There's, uh, there's Métis. There's Inuit. There's people from, from different provinces that represent different uh, indigenous cultures. So... So being able to make sure that you're doing it appropriately and effectively is is, is important. So that's that's the kind of the broad indigenous approach I take to it. Uh, but the other piece around it is uh, myself as a Nehiao, um, there's a term um, that I've been really been able to explore with my graduate studies and plus with my my role here in uh, at Norquest is uh, there's a term um, wakotoin in Cree, and the the meaning of it, or the the little literal translation, is we are all related. Um, and then when you start to break that down and look at it, um, and the meaning of of wakotoin, it's it's not only around we are all related as people, like as kinship, but we're all related to uh, essentially everything. How we're related to the land, how we're related to animals, how we're related to to spirituality. Uh, so when you start thinking about we are all related, it takes a very holistic approach on how how you uh, how you're making decisions that take a, a very holistic but a but a long term view of thinking of kind of the seven generations uh, ahead. So like always thinking about the seventh generation, and so being able to to think about indigenous worldview and indigenous knowledge and how you incorporate that within kind of your everyday like decisions or how you would incorporate into your role and and then even a, a broader concept of of Norquest of being able to being able to uh, incorporate a, a, a an approach like Wakoto in, into into policy into practice into 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 operation into a, a broader strategic mandate or vision like how do you do it and how do you do it well and how do you make sure that you're not just kind of um, appropriating a term like Okoto and, and just saying we're we're indigenizing something and this is how we're doing it. So so being able to explore uh, those those Cree terminologies and and how I can uh, have indigenous knowledge incorporated and inform my work is is important for me. Oh, super interesting. I had so many thoughts running through my head as you were explaining that. And and one of the things that really resonated with me is just the amount of diversity within the Indigenous community itself. Um, and just you're kind of highlighting that because I, I think sometimes we don't necessarily think about that uh, level of diversity. Yeah, yeah, wow. definitely. And especially with here in Norquest, we have uh, such a broad uh, student base within the broad population of, of the students, but within our indigenous uh, student population, we have so many different people from all over the place. And so, so when we when we when we work with them, and we kind of take a, especially with our elders, our elders are mainly Cree. So um, when we're when we're providing supports and services to students, we we need to make sure that we're not taking a pan-Indigenous approach and really kind of, uh, again, taking a very Cree-centric approach to providing supports and services that we uh, kind of meet the students with where they're at and where they're at with their own indigeneity and uh, exploring that with them and offering the right supports. Yeah. Fantastic. 
Well, I want to ask you more about um, the ermine skin uh, nation in particular. Can you tell us um, about it, even geographically, where it's located? Um, I'm curious to know if you grew up there. Just perhaps uh, give us a bit more of a picture about um, ermine skin Cree nation. Yeah, so ermine skin Cree nation, definitely uh, born and raised right on reserve. Uh, there was a portion of my my childhood where I I probably for about a year I I lived in Watasquin which is the the town that's about 10 15 minutes uh, north of of Ermanskin kind of the Muskogees and to give you an idea Ermanskin is part of uh, the four nations that make up Muskogees and for people it might be uh, easier to identify it as Hobima it's it was formerly Hobima and then we uh, we adopted or, or or gave its original name of Muskogees uh, so I grew up there and it's about 45 minutes to an hour south of Edmonton. So fairly, fairly close, uh, still very, uh, very easy drive down, down south. Uh, and, and yeah, I grew up, I grew up on reserve, grew up around family. I, I, uh, I, I think about, about how lucky I was to be able to grow up so close to, to uh, my family and be like that, that aspect of kinship was su- such an apparent part of my life while I was growing up. And, and, uh, but at the same time, uh, there was an interesting dynamic with Ermanskin, with Ermanskin and the other three nations, which are Samson Cree Nation, Louisville Tribe, and Montana uh, First Nation, uh, with Wetaskiwin. So I, I grew up on reserve, but majority of my schooling was off reserve at Wetaskiwin. And Wetaskiwin is a is a city which is around ten thousand people, predominantly a, a white community, and uh, the relationship between Wetaskiwin and Muskogee, as well Hobima at the time, was wasn't great. Like there was a lot of underlying. Well, while I was going to school, there was still some very outwardly racist. Uh, 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 comments and kind of just approaches from Wetaskiwin to uh, a lot of people that were from from Hobima, and so so going to the high school and graduating at a high school with uh, with with still that 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 tense relationship between them caused for um, yeah it was it was it was being able to 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 be successful within two worlds so that within the the Western world and uh, that that high school and being being surrounded by uh, a lot of non-indigenous people, then going back home and being wrapped around that indigenous worldview of uh, of Cree and being around my family, uh, so being able to be successful in both, but also uh, yeah, um, and I shouldn't say successful, uh, just just being able to to survive in both. So is, how, did, is how did you navigate being able to survive in both worlds? Yeah, it was, it was, it was, I would say it was very, it, it took a very conscious effort to being able to uh, uh, allow, um, oh, how can I say it? It, it? it takes an approach of being able to uh, allow both of those groups uh, into separate parts of yourself. Um, so when I was with my non-Indigenous friends in Wetaskiwin, I tried to, uh, I would say, be the exception in the sense of like, and, and have pride within that exception of being that, that, uh, and I heard this term quite a bit, like where, 
where uh, my non-Indigenous friends were talking about Muskogees and they would be like, yeah, these people were either uh, lazy, they were drunk, they were they were saying all that and then I was in the room and then they'd see me and they'd be like, but Elliot, you're the exception. You're the, you're the, like mm. that, 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 that's not you. And then, uh, on the other side of it, uh, being on reserve and having cousins and having friends, uh, all know that you're, you're, you're going to school off reserve and, and then you start being kind of labeled as that, uh, it's either called an apple or a potato. So, so brown or red skin outside and white, white in the inside. And so then, then always kind of being labeled as that person that is, uh, that is more like a white person than they are indigenous. So being able to navigate that and, and being able to, to be strong enough to, to take those comments and, and still move forward and, and understand that like, uh, there, there, there has to be uh, uh, a greener side to it. That, that, like, getting through this will get you to a better place. And so it was always kind of just once you're done, you can get out and go to university or get out and go to college or anything like that. And so it was, it was very much um, being able to to shift your mindset from depending if you're in the non-Indigenous realm of Wetaskiwin and then, or the Indigenous realm of being on reserve, uh, being able to navigate that in a way that, that doesn't allow you to be scrutinized to, uh, to, too much. Sorry, long, long answer to a, to a No, it's, a it's a great answer to, um, to, to the question. And, um, Again, as you were um, as you were saying all of that, I, I could I, you know I could relate in some ways um, as a, a person of mixed heritage. I I know the the feeling of trying to navigate those two worlds a little bit, and um, yeah, it never does really go away. But community and finding your community and finding your people, um, it makes it that much easier. Yeah, definitely uh, to navigate. Um, now you shared with me a, a pretty personal detail. Um, you shared that you stopped drinking, and I'm just wondering about that. I'm wondering if you could share the motivation behind your decision to stop drinking. Yeah, definitely. Um, so I've been sober for about 20 months now, and so it was right before I decided to apply uh, to the master's program, but it, it wasn't necessarily the reason why I I stopped drinking wasn't because of, uh, the master's program, but, uh, the more that I, uh, that I had took on or the more that I, I came into my, my, uh, my new identity, or at least a part of my identity that makes me who I am as a father, uh, the more that I started to realize kind of how, what I do, uh, shapes the experiences of my kids and my family. Um, so I have two children. Uh, my son is four and my daughter will be turning two next month. Uh, the more that I, that I interacted with them, the more that I, that I just became a father, the more that I just experienced that, the more that I realized I don't need alcohol in my life uh, as, as much as, I shouldn't say as much as I did before, but I just, I, my my social interactions have changed the 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 need for alcohol in my my life kind of changed and and the more that i did it the more that i'm just like i i don't need it in my life like i just i and and i should say that uh 
that there there is a part of it that that is that is around addiction, but it's it it wasn't necessarily the experience that I had personally in the sense of addiction. Like I, and this is where living in two worlds is very interesting as well too. Uh, growing up, um, I grew up in in an immediate family, but also an extended family that struggled with alcoholism. And so I saw as uh, a per, like uh, my experience as a child growing up, the impact that alcohol can have on a family and even extended family. Like I saw the impact that uh, some of my cousins were going through with just their parents being, having, being kind of their troubles with alcohol. So being able to uh, make that conscious decision of, for me, like at this point in my life, I don't need alcohol in my life. And that's where uh, a lot of it, and you'll, you'll, you'll hear this kind of discourse within indigenous communities, or at least within, within, my, within my undergrad, there was a, there was a lot of discourse around uh, sovereignty and self-determination. And so, and, and that self-determination was very much put on a, on, on the lens of a community and that community approach of self-determination. Um, I am trying to apply it in a way that is very much on that, that self, that, that individual piece. And the more that I can make decisions and have that own control over myself, like right now in my life, I can determine for myself that I don't need alcohol in it right now, just because, um, it doesn't add any more value to my life right now. It doesn't. It doesn't add any more value to my family. So I don't need it in my life as as an individual right now. And that doesn't mean that I, I I expect my wife not to drink. That doesn't mean that I expect my extended family not to drink. But just that decision to have that control over oneself to say, right now, this doesn't need to be in my life. Like I'm going to take a pause from it. It doesn't necessarily mean that I won't. Uh, uh, decide that um, to incorporate uh, alcohol back into my life at a later date, but is this that decision, that that control to be able to say this is this is how I want my life to be sh- shaped, and this is how my I want the perception of my kids to 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 be experience alcohol or or not experience alcohol in that way. So, but it's it's very much. Uh, informed from my experience of my childhood, but also the approach of self-determination and determining just my, my individual self mm-hmm. and how it impacts my, my, my media family. Yeah. yeah. Well, thank you. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. Um, I do want to talk more about Norquest College. Um, I had a chance to tour the Indigenous Student Centre last year, and I spoke with a student, um, Gordon Holub, which is episode four of season one, if any of our listeners want to go back and check that out. And Gordon and I had a great chat about his perspective as an Indigenous student at Norquest. Now, from a staff perspective, can you tell us about how Norquest in general is engaging with both its Indigenous students and the community overall, and then how your role specifically fits into that? Yeah, yeah, of course. Uh, Gordon, I've only met him a couple of times, but he is highly regarded within the Norquest community. Uh, I see his name a lot, and I hear people talk about him quite a bit. So I'm so glad you were able to to uh, to interview him or have him on your podcast. Uh, so for Norquest, they over the past I would say couple of years, I've only been with Norquest for about a year, 
And my experience so far has been great. It has been really amazing in the sense of of being a staff member and um and, and one of the one of the things that brought me over is that in my interview, uh one of the interview panel members uh is is indigenous. She's from my community and and I asked why 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 do they love to be here at Norquest? And her her answer uh, was the tipping point for me of being like, okay, I, I can be here. Uh, her answer to that was, I never, I never feel oppressed within my work. I never feel like I'm being colonized. I never feel like I'm being oppressed with anything that I'm trying to approach with my work. And that was so important for me in the sense of, uh, allowing freedom for indigenous staff to explore, uh, in, their their own identity, their own indigeneity, and how it can be applied to to their work and to the institution as a whole. And so, uh, hearing that and and knowing that uh, Norquest developed uh, an indigenization strategy uh, fairly recently, and there's one piece around developing a strategy and then uh, implementing that strategy and actually having a, a a good approach at implementing that and that 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 approach and hearing it from that person and that they take a very anti-oppressive approach to implementing a strategy like that is important. So that way I knew uh, if I'm going into this role, I'm going to have uh, some freedom and support in really pushing the boundaries on how uh, how as a college they're going to work with community, they're going to work with students in a very anti-oppressive way. And so uh, when in my approach, especially with community, uh, I want to make sure that, and this is where that indigenous kind of that broad indigenous part of myself, uh, any decisions that we're making, any approach that we're taking in the sense of uh, implementing that indigenization strategy is, is taking that approach of anything about us, or is it, <laughs> I keep forgetting, Nothing without us, or nothing about us without us. There you go. Uh, takes that approach, and so, so when we when we are developing this strategy, I want to make sure that uh, when when we're developing this, it's very much informed with community. Um, and I'll I'll share this with with you in, in the way that we want to approach it with Musquishies. Uh, previously, we have a campus in Wetaskiwin that is, like I say, right beside Musquishies. Um, the attempts before have been, um, they've been kind of one-off at building a relationship with Muscogees. And the last attempt was kind of bringing a bunch of stakeholders from Muscogees, uh, telling them the, what, what we do, and then all the stuff that we can do, and then having a short discussion, and then that was about it. And then so there was kind of a, a machine gun approach of building that relationship. Now, um, I want to make sure that the relationship is very intentional and starting off with ceremony and starting off with uh, the guidance of, of elders from that community and then bringing those, those uh, stakeholders together to determine what that partnership looks like. What does that relationship look like? Instead of showing that this is what we do and this is how we do it and this is what we can do for you, it's really okay, so what can we do together? And then what is Norcrest's role within helping you address issues? And 
does Norquist have a role within that? And so really having collaborative, a collaborative and empowering partnership with community instead of us saying like, okay, if it doesn't align with Norquest values, then we're not going to have a role within it. And it, it's more of like, okay, what can we do together? Because we're all a community. So how are we going to be able to move, move forward? Um, so that's the approach that I'm taking with community. And as the role of an Indigenous community engagement advisor, that's my role. And then with the students, uh, the Indigenous Student Center is just an amazing resource. And I have a team there that are student advisors, that is a program coordinator, that is a, there's a student uh, liaison uh, uh team member there as well and they're just wrapped around their their role is a def is essentially all working to make sure that students indigenous students within norquest are successful and have the appropriate supports to be successful so it's amazing it's just that the way that we of course i'm not i should say there's always room for improvement and and that's one piece around it too is that we are trying to figure out how we can improve on what we're doing already so Fantastic. It really sounds like you're going about building community in the right way with a lot of collaboration, a lot of participation. Um, now, you mentioned that your program, the MACE program, is primarily in person. So I'm assuming you might have to go to class sometimes during the day. And I'm just wondering, um, how has your employer Norquest supported you in your educational journey? Yeah, yeah. I've, I've been very fortunate uh, to have uh, a manager that he he's also going through a master's program at the same time. His is mainly online, but um, for mine to be in person, I've I've been I've been uh, given a lot of freedom in the sense of uh, allowing my schedule to incorporate uh, that that in person class. So I've I've been able to take uh, the afternoons off for my class that's that's been there. And then also if there's, especially for Robin Man's class, there was those experiential learning um, times, I've been able to take that off and then make up the time in, in other areas. And so it didn't have to eat up into my vacation time. It didn't have to eat up into, in, into uh, kind of unpaid leave. It was really very structured around uh, community work. That community work is not gonna be from nine to five. Like I'm gonna be working evenings. I wanna be working weekends. So being able to use that time and uh, kind of have a very flexible schedule to to allow for me to do experiential learning, to do land-based learning, to do um, uh, my my in-person class, uh, I've been very fortunate. And then NorQuest as well, um, because I, I do get band funding, but over the spring, I was fortunate to, uh, uh, NorQuest has this funding that is specific to uh, graduate studies. And so I was able to access that funding to help pay for my spring course. And, uh, and, and it's, I, I couldn't have been, I, I couldn't be in a, in a better institution that, that really values the, the, uh, the approach of just bettering yourself through education. And so it's, it's been, I've been very lucky with, with Norquest and very fortunate that, uh, that Norquest has been very, very supportive. And I have a very supportive manager. So. That's so nice. And even having your manager being a student as well. I, I was working with someone last year, and he was also a student. So I'd also often go into the office and it'd be like, yeah, I was spent all weekend writing a paper. And he would say, yeah, so did I. And just having that little camaraderie is really nice, too. Yeah, yeah, definitely, yeah. definitely. Now, you shared that you're married. You have two kids, both under the age of five. 
How do you balance school, work, and family life? That's a that's a lot. How do you <laughs> yeah. do it? Yeah. And so uh, I have to say my my fall term, my very first term, I I definitely bit off a little bit more <laughs> I could handle. The uh, my first term, I was in uh, an in person class during the day, and I was taking Rob's class as an online class. Uh, so I was enrolled in two classes my first term. This being like I haven't been in a student for like over over eight years, and so I I, I decided to take two classes while um, I was doing work full time, and uh, I was essentially because our daughter just turned one, and so she was in daycare, so we were navigating the two kids in daycare type of role as well. And I have to say that I, I have a very supportive wife that has that has taken on, on a lot, and especially during that first term where I was essentially every day after work, I was doing family time up until bedtime. And then after bedtime for my kids, uh, it was it was reading. I was reading or writing. And it was it was a lot. It was a lot for that first four months where I'm like, please. <laughs> Jessica, who's my wife, is like, don't don't let me take two courses again. Like this is crazy. Like I can't do it. And then of course, once I got my marks back, and then I'm like planning my winter term out, and I'm like, oh yeah, I could probably do two ter- two classes again. And my wife's like, no, you're not doing it. You're not doing that. <laughs> and so I I was able to now that I I only have one class, and that's how I'm structuring my career. It's it's a lot more. It's a lot more balanced. I I'm not uh, overwhelmed with readings and writings during the during the evening. So so that way uh, I have my work. I have a good balance with school, and then it allows me to still be a father and a husband uh, at home, which is which is great. And Thank it's... goodness your wife spoke up and said something <laughs> yeah. because I know I took two courses this past winter term and I and was working full time, and I know how much that is. It doesn't seem like a lot. You say, "Oh, it's two courses," but two courses is a lot of work. Um, and it's a recipe for disaster if you try and do it too many times in a row. Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely, yeah. Um, what's been the most positive thing for you about this whole experience of going back to school so far? Yeah, there's, um, I, I've had the opportunity to, because uh, my, my thesis uh, for my course, I wanted it done with some issue that I'm passionate about around the Indigenous community. And so I was able to find a faculty member within the Faculty of Extension that has an extensive experience or extensive uh, um, knowledge and experience uh, working with Indigenous communities. And uh, so far, my my coursework, and also with my supervisor, I'm actually, and this is where I'm like, I, I need to find, I'm getting into the realm of, of, of too much for my balance. I'm I'm working as a research assistant with my supervisor as well around a project she's doing uh, around uh, indigenous knowledge and how it's being incorporated within an institution like specifically the the University of Alberta, um, and this is a this is has been a really delightful surprise and 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 how I've been able to explore my own in, in de, indigeneity uh, through my graduate studies that being within Robin Mann's class with uh, the we are we are all related project. And with uh, this research assistant uh, position I have with that's focused around indigenous knowledge and the courses that I've taken so far have have all been a, a, 
allowed me to explore different indigenous aspects and different indigenous issues uh, within within the coursework. And so I'm 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 really uh, happy with the way that I've been able to explore uh, different aspects of indigenous knowledge, especially with relationality. Uh, relationality in that like it it's it's kind of that one step uh forward or one step deeper in that aspect of Wakotoin of we're all related there's there's that piece around relationality that's more of the uh the academic term of really exploring we are all related in the sense of land water uh, or land land uh, spirituality animals like they're th- understanding how the whole world is related uh with the sense of relationality, uh, has has really opened my eyes in the sense of how to approach not only school but my professional work with with that in mind of like relationality of like how do we how do we inform our work based in indigenous knowledge and indigenous worldview, and so it's it's been great how I've been able to incorporate a lot of my 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 learnings through uh, my grad studies into. Um, my actual work. And so, yeah, so there's, there's a couple of things there that have been some really good positives and uh, yeah, it's just overall been a really good experience. It sounds like you already have a sense of what you want to tackle for your research project. Can you maybe share a little bit more about that? Yeah. Yeah. So originally I wanted to explore uh, uh, how um, as, as an indigenous youth, uh, or child or youth, when they get when when they when they interact with the system of child welfare, uh, their their epistemology, essentially their way of knowing, is informed by an indigenous worldview. And then once they once they enter a system like child welfare, uh, their epistemology is changed. It then changes from something being informed by indigenous worldview to something that is very informed by a colonial system, that being the intervention system, that they are now a, a, a ward of the state. Um, so that was my intention. And then just recently, and fairly recently, just within the past month or so, I was able to restructure my thesis around uh, a project that I'm going to be doing here uh, at Muscogee or within Northwest. That that approach that I'm talking about with uh with developing that relationship with Muscogees, I'm actually going to do that for my practicum components of uh, of my of my uh, program, but also my also my thesis. So being able to take that community engaged approach to developing a formal type of relationship with with uh, with especially with four First Nations, and then uh, Muscogees has a college on the reserve, so. Uh, it's also developing a relationship with them. So uh, being able to uh, develop a formal partnership from uh, an institution that essentially will be utilizing the recommendations, the calls to action from the Truth and Reconciliation Commission to essentially develop a, a, a partnership that will inform addressing community needs. Um that that is going to be my thesis, and so so it's really I I have to, and this is this is all around community engagement, and and one thing that I've I've heard about community engagement through this program is that you have to be comfortable with the uncomfortable and be comfortable with with the process being messy, especially with this project. I'm I'm 
I'm I'm hesitantly looking forward to being able to say, please let us let me know how we should be working with you. Because then they could be like, you shouldn't be working with us, and I'd be like, okay, I guess back to the drawing oh, board. Well, it's so, like anything that involves other people, it gets messy. Yeah, yeah it doesn't go like it does in the lab. Yeah, um. exactly. So, so I'm I'm really looking forward to. Uh, building my thesis on something that's very applied and something that I can really be very, very uh, self-reflective and pl- practice reflexivity through that whole process. So it's uh, it's something that's worked out really well and it's it just kind of came to fruition just uh, like a month and a half ago. So looking forward to it. Sounds like you're well on your way. Um, what advice do you have for listeners who might be thinking about going back to school a little later in life? You said there was this eight-year gap, so you're coming back. What advice do you have for those folks? One thing that uh, that I've I've just been reminded of, and and it, it's and it's an approach that I that I I really took when when thinking about what a graduate program would mean for me and the the right one is that uh, teachings come to us when we're ready. And, and I, I feel like that's the same approach with, with knowledge, especially with Indigenous knowledge or even Western knowledge or, or an approach with, with what you're going to do uh, in your life. And so with me, I feel that decision, that, that, that epiphany or that, 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 that recognition of, of this is, this is a program that aligns w- well with what I've done with my career, but what I want to, what what I want to do with my career moving forward. I feel like it came to me when I needed it, yeah. and so so I don't know if that's <laughs> advice, if it's if it's something that's, that's great advice, that's <laughs> wonderful <laughs> advice. Well, Elliot, I just want to say thank you so much for being here. I really appreciated talking with you today and and learning about your journey. So thank yeah, you so much. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for having me. Hey Edmontonians, what does it mean to be well-endowed? Hosts Andrew Paul and Elizabeth Bonkink of the Well-Endowed Podcast would be happy to explain. Their show explores the impact of passionate people working to make Edmonton a strong, vibrant city, and how the Edmonton Community Foundation can help folks create endowment funds. You'll be surprised to learn how much impact can be achieved through relatively modest investment from regular Edmontonians. Check it out and subscribe at thewellendowedpodcast.com. And don't miss Edmonton's literary event of the season, LitFest. LitFest is Canada's original nonfiction festival, where venues across the city play host to authors and presenters from home and afar. You can see the full list of presenters at litfestalberta.org and book your tickets. Thanks to the Edmonton Community Foundation and LitFest for supporting the Alberta Podcast Network, powered by ATB Financial. I'm proud to be a member. And you can learn more about the network at albertapodcastnetwork.com. Now back to our show. One of the Cree terms that Elliot touched on in telling his story is Wakotawin, which he said roughly translates to, we are all related. And in my mind, listening to him talk, I was thinking, we are all connected. Because in hearing Elliot's story, I heard my own story reflected in so many ways. Beyond the career aspects of attaining credentials and adding to your professional experience, so many of the people I encounter in grad school also have really personal reasons for being there. Elliot shared his desire to deepen his connection to his own heritage. 
He shared the challenges of being a person who needed to learn how to walk in two worlds and to survive both, which is not at all easy to do. Coming back to grad school is related to exploring his own identity and then infusing that learning into his role at Norquest. Like Elliot, I wanted to return to school for the right reasons, and I really wanted to learn about and explore aspects of myself within an academic framework. The issues that brought me back to school are also in part related to identity. I think a lot about issues of race and racism, and being a person of Irish, Jewish, and Chinese heritage, walking in multiple worlds, and bringing those perspectives forward to inform my own work in communications and the business world. The course taught by Dr. Rob McMahon that Elliot took last fall that uses augmented reality to explore Indigenous knowledge, using technology to interact directly with knowledge keepers, it's really worth checking out, and I'll put a link in show notes to more details about that project. Last thought. Having the support of your workplace is such an incredible benefit for anyone enrolled in post-secondary education. Norquest's investment in and support of Elliot and his education really shows how they are living their values, and that's coming full circle in Elliot's approach to his work, building relationships and community on behalf of Norquest. That's our show today. I hope you enjoyed it. If you like the show, please give us a rating. It helps other people connect to us. You can reach me at backtoschoolagain.ca or at schoolagainpod on all the usual social channels. I'd love to hear your story. Back to School Again was recorded at the Norquest College Innovation Studio, located on Treaty 6 territory, the traditional homeland of First Nations and Métis peoples. A huge thanks to our sponsor, Norquest College, for supporting the show and to our talented technical producer, Corey Stroder. Back to School Again is proud to be affiliated with the Alberta Podcast Network. Find out more at albertapodcastnetwork.com. See you next time.